0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you here, and we are glad that you have come to join us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning, particularly all of those of you who are here uh, with us live and in person. And as Pastor Ted has said before, we want to welcome and thank all of you for joining us online this morning, and we're grateful uh, for your attendance with us this morning as well. And I certainly appreciate all of your prayers uh, on behalf of me and the rest of my family as we've been in that quarantine state for the last couple of weeks. But my Liberty card has been given back to me, and I have been able to enjoy that over the last week. i grateful, seriously, for all of your prayers for us. Presley is uh, is back at school. She is doing fine, and the rest of our family is doing fine. Thankfully, none of us ever showed any uh, signs of, of having the, the virus, so we are very grateful for that, but uh, it is good to be back with you all live and in person this morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, take them and turn with me once again to the book of Psalms, and specifically to Psalm 19. Uh, this morning we're going to continue our series of sermons entitled Songs from the Heart that we've been in now for, for a little while, and we're going to look at another one of the Psalms that David uh, is, has written, and uh, it, is, uh, it is a beautiful Psalm. In fact, it's a Psalm that C.S. Lewis said this about. He said about Psalm 19 that this is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. That's pretty high praise for the psalm that we're going to study this morning. It is a psalm that is uh, has absolutely beautiful poetry in it, and it is profound in its theological uh, points that it makes as well. It's a psalm that, the way that it begins, it's not too hard to imagine that David might have written it when he was out in the fields near Bethlehem, watching after his father's sheep, and and by candlelight as he stared up into the stars and saw everything taking place. That he might have written the first part of this psalm because it starts this way, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's just, it's just a beautiful way to begin to think about all that the, the world around us says to us about God. That's how the psalm begins. But in the second part, David turns his attention away from everything that's happening in the heavens and he actually directs our attention back to the written word of God. In fact, as we're going to see as we work through, through the text this morning, David describes God's Word by how he lists, how he lists out the, the, the benefits that come from God's Word. Well, we see that God's Word, the Scriptures, become even a greater treasure for us in many respects, especially in how it reveals God to us than the heavens themselves do. But in this psalm what we see is there are two books that God has written and revealed to us. The first one is the book of creation itself which tells us from the sun and the moon and the stars they they point us to a grand creator. And the second book is the special revelation of God that he has given us, the one in which he has revealed himself through his written word written by men of old who were moved along to write what they did by the Holy Spirit of God. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon described it, he says what we have portrayed for us here in Psalm 19 is the world book and the word book. And both of those are two volumes written by the sovereign God of heaven. And so it is worth our attention, it is worth our time to consider all that we read about In this text today. In fact, it's because it is the the text that we have, because that which we see in the heavens and that which we have written for us in God's holy word, because it was inspired and written by God Himself, that David recognizes that it demands a response from us. I like how Dale Ralph Davis has characterized Psalm 19. He says, He says, in this psalm, David's adoration starts at the top as he gallivants through the wonders of the visible creation. Then he comes down to laud the benefits of Yahweh's verbal revelation before finally expressing the urgent need of his own soul. Brothers and sisters, let me just say, it is the urgent need of our own souls communicated to us in the vastness of what God has created in this world but has given us specifically through his word that draws us to where we are this morning, And so with that in our thoughts, let's read Psalm 19 together. We read once again that it is a, a psalm that is directed to the chief musician. It is a psalm of David, and these are the words of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's go together to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, it is my prayer that that which David has just written for us and we've read, that this morning as I stand behind your pulpit, that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of my heart would be found to be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my, my strength, my rock, and my redeemer. I pray that as we collectively as a people gather around your open word this morning, that the words that you have authored will penetrate the thickness of our skin and in some ways the hardnesses of our hearts and that it would do a radical work transforming us and moving us and pushing us and drawing us into a deeper relationship with you. Lord, we recognize that oftentimes just as as we know our words and our meditations and our actions are not found to be acceptable before you. So Lord, today we want to We want to acknowledge that. We want to repent of our sin and trust in you. I pray that your word would accomplish its goal through the work of your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, we also want to specifically come right now and lift up our president to you, uh, the first lady, those who are among his cabinet, those who have tested positive for this virus, been hospitalized. Lord, it is our duty to pray for those that are in leadership over us. And specifically, we pray right now physically for, for them, praying that you might bring healing to their bodies. And, and Father, we recognize that, that those who bear such a great responsibility in front of us and, and for us, Lord, they are human beings just like us. They have souls, they have bodies, They have they have hurts and wants and needs that Lord, many times we, we do not think about it in that way, but specifically I pray for the physical needs this morning, and I pray that you might meet them and restore their health. I pray, Lord, that you might also bring them to the place where they would lead us in the way that you would have them to, from our president and vice president, from those who are involved in Congress, from the Senate to also the House, for our chief justices and for everyone who has a position that is there, that is leading us and, and affecting that those things which we are affected by in our country. I pray, Lord, that the words of their mouths and the meditations of their hearts would also be found acceptable in your sight. I pray that you would help them to lead with honor and integrity and in righteousness and in goodness and in justice. And I pray that that would flow down to your people. So, Lord, we just ask simply that you would inhabit the praises of your people today, but that you would also... Show us from your word what you would have us to see and then help us apply it directly to our lives. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. You know, before we look at the first part of this psalm, uh, I just want you to consider those last words with me again. In fact, I'm really not sure that you can get a proper understanding of what's told to us in the first part of this psalm if you don't really come to grips with the last words of the psalm. So, if you memorize scripture or you haven't ever memorized scripture, go back and memorize this scripture. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength, my rock, as the ESV puts it, my redeemer. Now, my question just simply is, if that were to be the desire of your heart, And the collective desire of all of us in this room and the collective desire of everyone we know, if every man, woman, boy, and girl woke up every morning and the first thing that came to their mind, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Just imagine what a difference that would make in the world in which we live. Imagine how it would change things. I want you to know the internal bickering And the arguing and the tensions that are so prevalent in our society, they would not be atop our headlines if that were the case. Racial conflicts would cease. Wars and fightings would stop. There would be no need to discuss lying. We would not have issues such as divorce that would constantly be dividing us from one another. We wouldn't deal with issues of lust. We wouldn't have things regarding murder. Abortion would never be something we would have to discuss if the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart were truly found acceptable before God. If the words that proceeded from our mouths and the things that we chose to allow to dominate our thoughts were to be laid bare before the Lord and we sought His approval of those things... And if we asked him to change those areas of our speech and of our thoughts and of our actions that are contrary to his divine will, just imagine the significant changes that would occur. And if I can just prove my point, I won't ask for a show of hands, but every single one of us in this room who have lived for any length of time whatsoever know what it's like to drag regret with us. We have that bundle that we put on our back and it's filled with all of the stuff that we've done in the past and things that we've said that we wish we could take those words back. We wish that we had not spent so much of our lives chasing after these things that got our attention and pulled us in a direction and then we look back and years, if not decades of our lives were spent chasing after the wrong things. You want to know why we regret that? Because the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart were not acceptable in the sight of the Lord who has revealed Himself to be our rock and our strength and our Redeemer. Just imagine if we we had lived our lives with the devotion and the obedience that verse 14 points out to us. If we had lived... Earlier points of our lives in, in light of that truth, just imagine how different our current lives today might look. What each of us know is that every word and every meditation has not been acceptable with the Lord, and consequently we live in a culture that is filled with filth and violence and racial tension and disregard for life and a disregard for the Lord. And what continues to happen is it spirals further and further and further away from it. The fact is, as James warns us in his epistle, we have not bridled or tamed our tongues. And as the Apostle Paul commands, we have not taken every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Instead, humanity as a whole has suppressed the truth of God that has been revealed and has exchanged it for a lie and as Paul tells us three times in Romans chapter 1, what has resulted is that God has given humanity over to its own depraved mind. And he's basically said, if this is what you want to chase after and this is what you want to be, then I'm giving you the freedom to go after it and become exactly what you become. Three times Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1. In other words, that which is said and that which is thought about and that which is meditated upon and ultimately acted upon, well, as is evident, those things do not bring glory to the Lord and they do not honor Him and they certainly do not bring blessing into our lives. In fact, I would go so far as to say that a tremendous amount of the troubles and the trials that we face in this life personally but also collectively as a people come as a result of the fact that our words and our thoughts and our actions are not found to be acceptable before God. Based upon what David has written here in this psalm, I cannot help but wonder if that is the case because we persistently fail to remind ourselves of the two great books of revelation in which God has revealed himself to us. And it is that thought then that pushes us back to the first part of the psalm, back to the first six verses this morning in which we see what David tells us there. And what I want you to see is that David reveals to us, first of all, the eloquence of the skies. The eloquence of the skies. That's the first point on your outline this morning. According to the dictionary, eloquence is the practice of using language with fluency and with aptness. It it's the art of communicating forcefully and persuasively and convincingly. And what David says is that the skies do that for us. The, the heavens do that for us. Literally, he tells us in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, let me read it for you again. The heavens declare the glory of God, so it's declaring, and, and the firmament shows or proclaims His handiwork. Day unto day it utters or it pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. So, so David tells us that there is a declaration, there is a, a proclamation, there is a revelation, and there is a, a pouring forth of speech that comes from the heavens and from the skies, which offers praise to the Creator. He clearly points us to the eloquence of the skies. Now we shouldn't be surprised by that. Genesis 1:1 tells us in the beginning, God created, the heavens and the earth. And so by examining that which he created, we learn things about God. Just as, a, as you could learn what a, about an artist by examining his masterpiece. Just as you would learn about an architect by examining the things that he designs. We learn about the creator by examining his creation. And we look at it and it tells us things about him. And David tells us, it, it tells us at least two things. The first one, it tells us about the glory of God, The word glory in Hebrew is a word that it means weight. It means worth of something. So we learn about the weightiness and the worthiness of God by examining his creation. It shows that to us. The firmament displays it. The heavens declare it. Day unto day speak of it. Night unto night reveals it. In fact, verse 4 tells us that the information that they reveal has gone out into all the farthest corners of the earth and there's no place that God's glory is not made known. But notice the firmament in the skies also proclaim God's handiwork. We might even say it's God's infinite power that they proclaim. Back when we looked at Psalm 8, I gave you some illustrations there that I wanted to direct you to help you be able to understand just how huge and how massive our universe was, and I wanted that to impress you, not because of the way I told it, but to impress you because it was God who created those things. Well, I found another illustration, and I'm going to see, see if this is, it has the same effect on you that that one did. Imagine one page in your Bible, one little thin page. Imagine that's 93 million miles. 93 million miles is the distance between the earth and the sun. One page. Now, that's That's the scale. One page, 93 million miles. Now, using that scale, the distance to the nearest star would be 71 feet. The diameter of our own galaxy would be 310 miles using that scale. 310 miles of that scale would be the diameter of our galaxy. And the edge of the known universe would be 31 million miles. Now, if you're anything like me, you checked out long before we got there because I can't handle it. It's too much. It's too big for me. You know what, though? That's not the important part. Here's the important part. God spoke and it came into existence. God created it. It testifies to his handiwork. What, what the amazing side of it is, is not so much the distance. It's the fact that the one who spoke it and created it is the one who stands behind it. And everything we see gives testimony to him of how wonderful he is, the glory that he has, the weight and the worth of who he is and how he was able to craft these and put it into place. The glory of God and the handiwork of God. Listen, what what it tells us too also is is that this is a continuous thing that nature calls out to us. You don't really see it in the English translations too much because the the word there is declare in verse 1 and proclaim. but, But in the Hebrew, those are actually participles. And you could just as easily translate them. Look, the heavens keep on declaring. And the sky keeps on showing and it keeps on proclaiming. In other words, this is not a one and done thing. It's a constant thing. It's not intermittent. It doesn't just show up once in a while. No, everything out there constantly and continuously communicates the glory and the handiwork of God to us. It's not just continuous, it's also abundant. I like the way the ESV translates verse 2. It says, day into day pours out speech. The translation pour out really is, a, is the best understanding of that verb. It's like what James Johnston puts. He says it really literally tells us that every day the skies just gush out information like a, like a fire hydrant. It's just overflowing with information. It's abundant. Where one day leaves off, the next day picks up. And where that day is, the night takes over. In other words, that which the skies reveal about God is continuous, it's abundant, it's also universal. Look at verses 3 and 4. It tells us there, there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In other words, the voice of the heavens reaches to the farthest corners of the globe. And what David tells us here is confirmed by what the apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 that I referred to earlier. As I mentioned, Paul is communicating the guilt of all humankind because of its wholesale rejection of God and His rightful authority. And it is a legitimate gift because, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without Excuse. What that means is that in God's general book of revelation, his glory, his handiwork, his power, his authority, all of that has been clearly shown and it is shown continuously, it is shown abundantly, and it is shown universally. Then as if to illustrate his point even further, David provides us with a case study. In the last half of verse four down through verse six, he reiterates the consistency in the the faithfulness of God as a revelation of Him of himself by, by pointing us to the sun. Here's the thing. For every day of all of our lives in this room, without fail, from our earthly perspective, not from the perspective of the universe, but from our earth, earthly perspective, the sun has risen in the east and it's tracked across the sky and set in the west. Every day of our lives, that's how we would explain it. From our earthly perspective, the sun rises in the east It says, even on the days when the clouds were obscuring the sun, what we know is that it rose in the east. It tracked across the sky and set in the west every day of our lives. Do you know what that points to? If it tells us anything, it points to the faithfulness of the track of the sun. And that points even further to the faithfulness and the dependability of God who created it. You see how it points us to the attributes of who God is. The sun also points to the radiance of God. David talks about him, the son being like a bridegroom, bursting out of his tent because he can't wait to get to the wedding. And why can't he not wait to get to the wedding? He can't wait to get his bride. He says that's the way the sun charges from the sky and goes across it. So the radiance of God is portrayed for us there. The strength of God is portrayed for us there. He talks about him being like a strong man who rejoices. And the reason he's rejoicing is because he's won the race. God is radiant. He's he's strong. He's also dominant. Notice the last part of verse 6 there. In the last part of verse 6, David says of the sun, there is nothing hidden from its heat. Don't miss that. You see, the same can be said of God because there is not a single creature that God has ever created that can hide from him. Every one of us are revealed to God at all times. We cannot hide from his heat. We cannot hide from that which he brings to us, both good and bad. So, so God, is, God is radiant, He is strong, He is dominant, and those things force us to reckon with the eloquence of the skies, the eloquence, the words, the communication of all that we see from God in His creation. But even though those skies are eloquent in what they communicate about God, we must nevertheless realize that such revelation is still limited. We don't know everything about God that we need to know and that we want to know just by looking at the skies. They, they reveal a tremendous amount to us, but they don't tell us everything. They don't tell us about, about a lot of the moral attributes and qualities of God. We don't necessarily understand about His justice and His mercy and His love and His wrath and His goodness and His grace and His compassion. Nor do the skies, by looking at them, tell us how we're to relate to one another. No, for that information, we have to turn away from the eloquence of the skies to the second point that I want you to see in the thing that David drives us to, and we go there to the explicitness of the scriptures, the explicitness of the scriptures. Beginning in verse 7 of this psalm, we note a very distinctive change. In fact, some have even theorized that the first six verses were were written as one psalm and they kind of existed on their own over here for a while, and then... And then then verses 7 through 14 came along and that they were written as another psalm and they existed independently for a while and then later an editor came along and put them together into the psalm that we have here. And that's a possibility, but I'm not convinced of it. I am convinced that David changes attention beginning in verse 7. And here's how you can know. If you look back in the first six verses, you see the name of God mentioned one time. You'll see that it is God in our English translation. That's because it is the name el the general name of God who was the, the creator and the, the one who was powerful and mighty. He refers to him there in verses 1 through 6 as God. But then beginning in verse 7, all the way down through verse 14, seven times you will see Lord in all capital letters. And that is representative, as we noted last week, of God's covenant name, Yahweh. That's how it's translated, in all caps, Lord. And so David turns from just talking about God in the, the sense that he's the majestic one who creates to start talking about the, the covenant God, the, the covenant Lord of, of Israel, the one who, who can be revealed in all of his magnificent ways from verses 7 through 14. And what we begin to recognize is that, is that David reveals a lot about us to him through the word. Now, we've got to notice, first of all, that when we start looking at verse 7 down through verse 11... We recognize that David was fond of poetry. And I told this at to the first service, I'll tell you as well. That's probably one of the reasons why I've steered a little way from preaching through the Psalms and some of the more poetic books in my life. I'm much more one that likes the narrative sections of Scripture, and I like the kind of the didactic parts of Scripture, letters, poetry. Sometimes, maybe it's, maybe it's just me. I have a hard time with it being able to put it together. But here's what I've learned in studying poetry, particularly as I've I've forced myself into the Psalms. Sometimes to understand poetry, you have to take a step back from it. You have to let it be what it is and then look at it from an outsider's perspective, as it were. Maybe that's what helps a little bit, because here's what I want you to know. When David begins to talk about the scriptures here, he gives them alternating names. You'll notice that the nouns that are in these verses are important. You might just want to underline them or highlight them somewhere. He talks about it as being the law. He talks about it as being testimony. Uh, He talks about it as statutes, commandment, fear, judgments, those are the nouns that he uses to describe. And I don't think that those are to be dissected individually so much as they are to be combined together to see what does that tell us? What are those kind of words, those nouns, what does that tell us with regard to the the nature of the Scriptures? And this is what I would say. All of those words convey authority. All of those words give us the idea that that the Scriptures are authoritative for our lives. I, I like how one preacher has put it. He says, God doesn't just timidly tap us on the shoulder and say, excuse me, but, but I suggest that maybe if you might think about it once in a while that maybe you might follow a couple of the things that I have put out there for you. That is not how God works. God has given us something and it is authoritative. It is there to speak truth into our lives. And it is there to direct our steps. It's not a suggestion. It is... It is law, it is testimony, it's statutes, it's commandments. It induces fear and it has judgment related to it. So there's the authoritative nature of the scriptures. But then, then if we're going to look at the nouns, let's also look at the adjectives because the adjectives are important as well. David uses a various words to describe those nouns. He uses the word perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and righteous and if we look at those words in a collective way, like we did the nouns, then we'll realize that they actually communicate to us the common element of, of precision and accuracy. You see, not only is God's word authoritative, but it's, it's precise and it's accurate. It, it's, it, it doesn't contain anything unwholesome. It doesn't contain impurities. It's completely straight. It is completely dependable. What God's word does is it it is it's direct and it's unwavering from the truth. So it's authoritative and it is precise and, and accurate. And then notice the verbs, because the verbs actually convey to us what the benefits of the scriptures are. The verbs, along with their objects, give us an idea of how they benefit us. And so David says that the that the scriptures are, are, are useful for converting or reviving the soul, for, for making wise the simple, for rejoicing. The heart, for enlightening the eyes. We looked at that a few weeks ago. It's the same phrase that we looked at a few weeks ago. It means to bring the sparkle back to our hearts. It's the way that opens up for us the the answers that we are. And listen, that's the benefits of God's holy word. And we can trust it because it's completely authoritative and completely precise and completely accurate. All those benefits then tell us just how valuable the scriptures are. Verse 10, David says... That the scriptures are to be more desired than gold, yea, than more fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. As one has put it, God's word is the greatest treasure for those who love him. We love the Bible more than we love money, more than fine gold. God's word is our greatest pleasure, sweeter than the finest tasting food, the best smelling perfume and the most fashionable clothes and the fastest cars and the best songs. I put in my own notes, it's better than a 1971 blue Camaro with white racing stripes. The Bible's better than anything. And you know what? Just that statement in and of itself forces us to ask ourselves, do I value the word of God like that? Is God's word that important to me? That I'm willing to give up everything else to get it? That I'm willing to put aside other things that draw my attention to it so that I can have it? David's words no matter how you shake them, are convicting words, which actually brings us to another attribute of the word of God that we learn there in verse 11. David, the scriptures tell, David tells us the scriptures are also confrontational. David says, moreover by them, in other words, by the scriptures, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is a great reward. You see the difference there? There's a warning. If you do not treat God's word with with the authority, if you don't respect the authority and the precision and the accuracy of it, if you don't treat it along that way, there is a great warning that comes along with that, that you you will transgress the law of God and, and suffer those results. But those who live in its way and walk according to its precepts, there's great reward that follows with that. And so God's word confronts us. It's confrontational. As one has written, God doesn't always come along and pat me on the back and say, oh, good job, Craig. Great way to go. Excellent work. Good good for trying. No. God's word sometimes comes along and slaps me upside my head and says, boy, you better stop that. Sometimes he comes along and says, that right there is not an option for you. You better start it. God's Word is confrontational. And it's not going to let you just sit in where you are and not push you further toward becoming like Christ. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 verses 12 13. The writer of Hebrews says this, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That means me and you. And God's word often serves just like I can't remember. Does the grit of sandpaper, as it gets higher? Is that rougher or lower? Which one is it? Higher. It's the highest content at times of sandpaper rubbing against us. It scrapes against who we are and it hurts and it's painful and we don't like it and we push against it and if we can, we'll, we'll put sunglasses on and hide ourselves from it But God's word is piercing and it tells us this is what you must deal with. So we see the explicitness of the scriptures. And it reveals God to us. It reveals his character to us. It reveals it with great precision. It reveals truth. It tells us everything that we need pertaining to life and to godliness and to wisdom and to salvation. The scriptures reveal God's divine will for our lives and it warns us against disobedience, which is exactly what David gets to there in verses 12 through 14. I'm gonna quickly go through it. I would encourage you to go back and study it more for yourself. But in verse 12, he says this. He says, reveal to me, don't, don't. He he talks about his hidden sins. And I don't mean the sins that you and I hide, right? Because I I can build a facade around me and build up a wall, and that way I can live any way I want to over here, and you don't see it because I'm hiding my sins from you. That's not what David is speaking about here. No, he says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. It means that there are things that come up in my life sometimes that I'm guilty of, and I didn't even realize I was guilty of that. As you study his word, and as God's word points its Spotlight into the dark recesses of our hearts. It has the ability to reveal things that you and I didn't even realize we were guilty of. But as God through his Holy Spirit brings that to our mind, David says, I don't even want that. I, I don't want there to be things that I'm, I'm continuing to progress in but that, that are wrong before you. I didn't realize they were wrong but I want that to be cleansed from me. That's, that's verse 12 but then in verse 13 he gets to what we were more familiar with. In verse 13, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That's, that's the ones where we, we know we shouldn't do it and we do it anyways, Or we know we should do it and we turn the other way. That's, that's where a lot of us live. David says, I don't want either one to be indicative of my life. I want God's holy word. By the studying of it, Lord, I want to be, I want to be cleansed of those. And so that's where we get to. David prays here that based upon what God has revealed, he wanted to be delivered from sin, from the sin that he knew about, from the sin that he didn't even realize that had ensnared him. And he recognized that for that to happen, he had to respond to God's revelation by submitting to what God had revealed, which is what he prays for in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, my rock, my redeemer. And that brings us back full circle to what we first began considering this morning. And it's that revelation then that sends me to the last third and final point. You didn't think we were going to get there, but here we are. And that is the example of our Savior. You see, the, the eloquence of the skies and the explicitness of the scriptures point us ultimately to the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, while we know that every word of our mouth and every meditation of our heart has not been found acceptable in the Lord's sight, we do know that Jesus' has been. The Bible tells us specifically, Hebrews 4 verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In fact, he absolutely can sympathize with every single one of our witnesses, but this is what, this is what separates him and sets him apart from you and me because the rest of that verse says this, he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Completely holy, completely just, completely undefiled, pure. That's Jesus. The apostle Peter puts it this way, for in this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus himself, set the example for us on how we should live. So so that means that we should follow in his footsteps and live a life of obedience and submission to the one who has revealed himself in the skies and in the scriptures. But Jesus came not to just reveal an example for us because the example would only continue to point us to our failure and it would give us no victory whatsoever. Jesus came, yes, to give us the example to live the perfect life that we could never live, but he also came to die in the place of rotten, sinning failures just like you and me, whose words have not always been acceptable in God's sight, whose meditations have certainly not been acceptable in God's sight, and whose actions have not been acceptable in God's sight. Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God who lived a perfect life, died on a cross suffered death in my place and in your place, not just so that he could be our example, but so that he could be our Savior. And it's that thought then that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. You see, because God has revealed himself generally through the skies and specifically through the scriptures, we must submit to God's revelation by facing our sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Here's the question. Have you done that? Have you you humbled yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ admitted your sin, placed your unconditional, unreserved, undiluted faith in the crucified and resurrected Savior? Is he Lord? Is he ruler? Is he master over your life? I want you to know there is no There is no greater question that you can ask yourself than that one. Do you praise him when you see a beautiful sunrise and sunset? Is that the first thing that comes into your mind? Does your heart bubble up with praise and wonder at his majesty revealed in that which he has created? Or do you just simply enjoy that which he has created without ever acknowledging Him is sovereign one who has spoke it all into existence. Have you, as Romans 1 talks about, engaged in worshiping the creation rather than the creator? How about God's word? As we noted earlier, is it precious to you? Are you a student of it? Does it tend to find its way to a certain location on Sunday afternoon and that's where you pick it up on Sunday morning? Is God's word precious to you? Listen, what we cannot do is sidestep what is revealed to us about the Lord in this psalm and we cannot sidestep what our proper response to it must be. And in light of all of that has been revealed generally in creation and specifically in his word, you and I must humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus. We must confess our sin and trust in him and in him alone to save us. Listen, if you have never entered into a a relationship with Christ, that is is the number one thing. And I want all of you who are at home worshiping with us online, maybe you'll come across this at some point later. They're gonna put a phone number up on that screen. Listen, if you have never trusted Christ, but you would like for someone to talk with you about what that means and to pray with you, Call that phone number and leave a message. One of us will be back in touch with you. It is, it is incredibly important that you recognize this is where it begins. It begins with establishing a relationship with Christ who came and died on a cross for my sins and I want to be in a relationship with him. If that is the desire of your heart, call that number one of us will be back with you and we'd love to talk with you further about it. If you're in this room and you find yourself in the same place, there's going to be a couple of us back in these rooms as you leave this morning. Stop and talk with us. Because there's no greater thing that you could ever do than to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ through humbly acknowledging your sin and the necessity of his saving work. If you've done that, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then your, your prayer and my prayer must be absolutely, without doubt, every day, Lord, let the words of my mouth And the meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. And all God's people said, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word that you give to us, and we're grateful for how you reveal yourself to us in all the beautiful, wonderful ways in creation. But Lord, we are also immensely grateful because we could never know all that has been revealed to us by looking at the stars and the skies but what you have revealed to us through your word. We're grateful that that word has power, that it, that it accomplishes great and wonderful and mighty things when we read it and when we study it and when it's proclaimed. My prayer is this morning that the proclamation of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, as it goes forth, that it will not leave anyone the same as it was before. That you would continue to rattle our cages and use it to smooth us out and to cause us to become more and more like Jesus. My prayer is that it would call those who are far from you, close to you, so that they might experience the joy of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your love and your mercy. And I thank you for the morning that you have given us to be able to study your word together. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.